This is a musical revival. My name is Rachel, and welcome to episode six. Welcome back, everybody. Hope everyone's doing well and feeling good. I'm feeling very energized. I'll get into why I'm feeling energized in a bit, but if this is your first time listening to the podcast, welcome. My name is Rachel. This is a musical revival, a podcast all about musical revivals. So every week or every other week, I should say, I bring to you a musical that I think needs to get revived on Broadway, off Broadway, the West End, doesn't really matter. And I talk a little bit about the plot, the characters, musical moments that I think are wonderful, themes, and ultimately what my dream revival looks like. One more thing before I explain my general demeanor, I just want to remind everybody listening that you can follow the show on Spotify, that way you never miss an episode. You can follow us on Instagram, the handle is at Musical Revival Podcast, and if you have time, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find the podcast and get involved in this conversation about musical revivals and musicals in general. I am in a great mood because I just finished watching NBC's Best of Broadway. Uh, It was a wonderful evening of fantastic performances from some of my favorite shows and shows that I really want to see once they come back to Broadway. Uh, Some of my favorite pieces were performed. It was just a great overall evening. It put me in a great headspace. It made me miss Broadway a lot, but it also made me look forward to the day when we can all gather together uh, communally to see a play or a musical. Um, So I'm just like flying high off of that. Besides that wonderful piece of television, I don't think I have any other updates to give y'all other than the fact that we still don't have a date for the Tony Awards. Two weeks ago, I said we have nominees and no date, but maybe we'll have one by the next time a podcast comes out and we don't have any date. Obviously, the ceremony is going to have to happen in 2021. Um, I'm wondering if they meant to do it this way or if something came up that prevented them from having the ceremony earlier. I don't know. Good questions, I think. So the last thing I want to bring up before we dive into today's episode is a film I recently watched called Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey. You may be asking yourself, Rachel, what does this have to do with musical revivals? It has literally nothing to do with musical revivals. I like the movie and it's my podcast, so I'm going to talk about it for five seconds. The movie was fantastic. I love the cast. I love the music. I love the costumes. I love the choreography. Everything about this film was just perfect in my opinion. I think I'm part of a very small group of people that feel like movie musicals should stay movie musicals and should not have a life as a live stage experience. I'm, I think I'm part of the people who do not think that should happen. Um, I think it's a very small group of us, but Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey is one movie I definitely can say deserves to have a live stage experience, whether that's Broadway, off-Broadway, like somewhere at like a theme park somewhere. I don't care. I just think it was such a wonderful story and it was so interact. It could be so interactive if it was live on stage, um, that it would really appeal to people of all ages, genders, races. It was fantastic. 25 out of 10 would recommend go watch it 700 times on Netflix this weekend. You will not regret it. Trust me. Fun fact, Fiddler on the Roof has been revived every single decade since the 1960s on Broadway. That doesn't include any of the touring productions, any West End productions, or off-Broadway productions. So basically every 10 years, somebody says, you know what we need to see? Fiddler on the Roof. And you know what? They are correct. (laughs) 
week's pick for a musical revival is Little Women. Little Women the Musical opened on Broadway on January 23rd, 2005 and closed on May 22nd, 2005 after 137 regular performances. The show was originally directed by Susan H. Shulman, choreography by Michael Litchfield, music by Jason Howland, lyrics by Mindy Dixon, and the book was by Alan Nee, obviously based on the Louisa May Alcott book of the same name. I think many people, myself included, have a very emotional attachment to Little Women. And before I talk about the musical, I just want to talk a little bit about the book and my personal experience with it. Fun fact about me, I don't have any sisters. Growing up, all of my best friends had at least one sister, and my mother is one of four girls. So I was surrounded by girls and women who had sisters while not having a sister of my own. I remember always wanting a sister, but I think my obsession with sisters and sisterhood was really launched by Little Women. I remember my mother giving me the abridged children version of the novel when I was about eight, reading it and loving the March sisters and wanting to be just like them. I don't want to talk too much about the novel of itself because I feel like that is a totally different subject and I really want to focus on the musical. So let's jump back to it. So like I said, the show closed in May of 2005. The show was lucky enough to get one Tony nomination for Best Leading Actress in a Musical. It did not win this, but it did go on to have a 2005 US tour, followed by a tour in Sydney, Australia in 2008. And then in 2017, there was a production in Manchester. This doesn't include all of the regional and smaller scale productions of Little Women. It happens all the time, colleges, universities, uh, local theaters. It's a very popular show um, because of its size of cast and because of the content of the story. Since its closing in 2005, Little Women the Musical has formed a cult following. Sutton Foster often talks about in interviews how thrown she is when people come up to her and say that Little Women is their favorite musical or that Little Women is the musical that got them into musical theater in the first place because it had such a short life on Broadway, but its impact is endless. I think part of that cult following can be attributed to the Act One finale song Astonishing. I'll talk a little bit more about the song as we get into the plot, but it's a really, really popular audition song because it's a really high and difficult belt that shows off the singer's voice. Little Women is one of the most beloved American novels ever written. I know it is for me. It's also one of the most adapted pieces of literature ever. So why didn't the musical that shares its name have an equal amount of success? My first theory has to do with the Tony Awards. Whether you like it or not, in this day and age, a show needs Tony nominations to run. A show needs Tony nominations to get butts in seats for their show. When Little Women only received one Tony nomination, I think it really hurt the production overall. People come from out of town to see musicals. They want to see what is being considered the best new musical, or the musical with the best score, the best choreography, the best costumes. When Little Women only had one nomination, Maybe it wasn't enough draw to bring audiences in. The second theory has to do with the reviews. Little Women wasn't receiving great reviews, but it also wasn't receiving bad reviews. Everything was just kind of in the middle. Typically with a musical or any piece of art, critics are expected to have big reactions. Artists want people to have big reactions. You want people to love it or hate it to be angered or empowered after seeing your piece of art on stage. 
from reading the reviews of Little Women, it's very clear to see that the critics did not have strong feelings about this piece. They all liked it, kind of. They didn't hate it. They didn't love it. They just kind of liked it. And I think that ultimately hurt the show. My third and final theory has to do with when Little Women opened on Broadway. The show opened in January of 2005, dead of winter. Not a lot of people are coming into the city at that time because the holidays are over, it's really cold, everyone is back to school. I think if Little Women had opened in March or closer to the summer, maybe even waited until the summer to open, it would have had a very different life. Little Women is a family-friendly generational story. Your grandma knows it, your mom knows it, you're probably going to read it in school, your kids are probably going to read it in school too. So if it had the opportunity to really play to that audience, I think it would have been very successful. Ultimately, if the show had still received the same amount of Tony nominations and the same reviews it did, but had opened at a different time, allowing it to play to audiences like families and multi-generational, I think it would have done so well. It probably would have run for at least a year and a half. I honestly think so. Based on everything that this show had going for it before it opened on Broadway, there is no good reason why Little Women the Musical should not have run for at least a year on Broadway. I have spent the last two weeks of my life trying to figure out why this musical didn't run that long. The book is great. The music is great. The casting is great. We had Sutton Foster fresh off of her first Tony win. What more could you want from a musical? 2005 audiences and I do not vibe at all. I think I'm getting a little too heated, so I want to talk about the cast and try and calm down a little bit. Meg Murch was played by Jenny Powers. Joe Murch was played by Sutton Foster. Beth Murch was played by Megan McGinnis. And Amy Murch was played by Amy McAlexander. Their mother, Marmy, was played by Maureen McGovern. And Lori, the boy next door, was played by Danny Gerwin. Those familiar with the original story uh, can acknowledge that Little Women is a novel comprised of small adventures that the four March sisters go on over the course of what I believe is seven years of their lives. And because it is a novel comprised of little adventures, when you adapt this story, you can pick and choose exactly which little adventures you would like to tell. Um, Famously, in the 2019 movie adaptation, Greta Gerwig said that she could have created a second film telling the same story of these four women with completely different stories from the novel. That's part of the fun with Little Women adaptations. They're all just a little bit different. Okay, let's talk about the plot. I am your destiny, your bitterest fall. You stole what was rightly mine. It's January 1865 in a boarding house in New York City. Professor Bear receives a letter addressed to Joe March. Joe enters, reads the letter, and learns that her story has been rejected. This is the 22nd publisher to reject her work and encourage her to go home and have babies. Joe asks to read the story to the professor, and that launches us into our first number, an operatic tragedy. As Joe is reading the story, Other actors in the show are acting it out in the background. The story is about a young heroine, Clarissa, who's running away from Braxton, who is obsessed with her. 
The hero, Rodrigo, appears and saves Clarissa from Braxton. Rodrigo introduces himself as someone who fought Braxton 10 years ago and has come back to settle the score. Before Joe can continue the story, Professor Bear interrupts her and Joe asks for his opinion. And he says, she's unique, but she can do a lot better than these stories. Joe is immediately insulted and kind of picks a fight with the professor, saying that her work did very well in Concord, where she's from. This launches us into the next song, Better, which also transitions us back in time about two years. The song is a quick moment for Joe to express her belief that the story she has written will be her King Lear, the greatest thing she's ever written, and that if she fails, she doesn't know what she's going to do. She ends the song, now transformed into the Joe from two years ago in her house, surrounded by her sisters, Meg, Beth, and Amy. She ends the song by asking herself in the, and the audience, was I better when I was home? Now it is 1863, Christmas Eve, in the March's parlor. Joe tells her sisters that she has finished her newest play, an operatic tragedy, which they will perform at Christmas, fixing a Christmas where father is away at war and there won't be any nice presents. Joe encourages her sisters by describing what fun they'll have and how Christmas will exceed their finest dreams. This is one of the show's rousing pieces, and it builds so beautifully at the end. In this song, Joe makes her sisters promise that they'll always stay the way that they are, the four March sisters forever. This is going to be important later when we discuss themes, so I thought I'd bring it up here. The song ends, and Joe, ever full of excitement, demands a task to do. She is sent by Amy to get a Christmas tree. She runs across to Mr. Lawrence's house to cut down and steal one of his trees. Amy discusses with Beth and Meg how grumpy he is, Mr. Lawrence, and Beth insists that Mr. Lawrence isn't grumpy, he just seems sad and a little lonely. The girl's mother, Marmy, enters with a letter from their father, looking for Joe. The girls distract her by telling her about their day until Joe enters with the tree that she has just cut down and stolen from Mr. Lawrence's house. Marmy, of course, scolds Joe, but instead of forcing her to return the tree, Beth suggests that they send the tree to the Hummel family who have so little over the holidays. As they come to this agreement, Mr. Lawrence enters, followed by his grandson, Theodore Lawrence III, furious that Joe had cut down the tree. To appease and to apologize, Joe says that she'll make it up to him by planting six more trees. He counters by telling her to plant 12 trees, and she must cut and prepare the firewood for them for several weeks. He leaves, and his grandson introduces himself to the girls and compliments Joe for cutting down the tree. Joe then enlists him to take the tree to the Hummels, which he does very happily. The girls now gather around Marmy to hear the letter from father. The letter very famously contains the phrase, tell them to be good girls, faithful and hardworking, and to conquer that which is disagreeable in them, so when I return, I'll be fonder and prouder than ever of my little women. Marmy encourages the now sad girls to go on and get ready for the operatic tragedy. The girls rush out to get their costumes and prepare, and Marmy sits to write a letter to her husband. This song, Here Alone, is a wonderful, deeply moving moment for Marmy. Here, Marmy gets to express her sadness, her sadness in missing her husband, and how she cannot express her fears to her husband because he's away at war and needs to focus on that. She's nervous that he won't return, and she's nervous that she's going to have to raise their four girls all alone. And she's alone in her sadness because she cannot express it to her husband. The older I get, the more I understand Marmy's character and the very 
difficult situation that she finds herself in. It's a really beautiful piece um, for anyone who's a little bit older who wants to give it a try. In the next scene, the audience meets Aunt March. She is waiting for Joe to arrive, who is late. Once Joe enters, Aunt March immediately begins to rip Joe apart, telling her that she needs to stop writing stories and realize that she is on the verge of womanhood. Joe says that she'll never marry. Aunt March says that all women must marry. Then Aunt March goes on to say that she could never take Joe to Europe, and Joe, suddenly interested, because, duh, Europe, says that she could change and become more ladylike as Aunt March suggests. Could You, the song, is where we see how far Joe will have to go to be deemed acceptable to travel to Europe. She's got to do the things that we expect, like wear a corset even in July and obey the rules, but also things that don't seem as obvious, like biting her tongue instead of speaking out and bending her will. Joe insists that she will change and be beguiling like Aunt March suggests. The song ends with the woman agreeing that if Joe changes completely, Aunt March will take her to Europe. It is now Valentine's Day, 1864. Meg and Joe are going to Annie Moffat's St. Valentine's Day Ball. Although Meg had been looking forward to the ball, now she's a little nervous. This being her first ball, and having never danced before, and wearing a fancy dress, Meg is unsure of how people will view her and if they will like her. When Meg asks what she should say when someone asks her to dance, Marmee responds with, I'd be delighted. A fun quick number where Marmee, Beth, and Joe encourage Meg about the evening, and there's a quick dance break in it that is just so wonderful, and it really gives you that feel of these girls are sisters and this is a real family. When the song finishes, Amy enters, who thinks that she'll be attending the ball in Joe's place. Amy is extremely rude to Joe, insulting her, but Joe insults her right back and leaves for the ball with Meg. Marmy scolds Amy and says that when Joe returns, she must apologize. Beth and Marmy head up to bed as Amy tosses Joe's manuscripts into the fire before disappearing up the stairs as well. Later at the party, Meg and Joe argue about Joe accidentally spilling her punch on someone when they run into Lori, who has fallen asleep on a couch in a room. Mr. John Brooks enters, he's Lori's tutor, and insists that Lori come with him, but is distracted by Meg's beauty. Meg and Mr. John Brooks discover that they are both romantics and love to read the works of Keats and Shelley. Mr. John Brooks says to Meg that he would like to dance with her, and she says that she would be delighted, and she is whisked away, leaving Joe with Lori. The two talk, and Joe tells Lori that she writes blood and gut stories. Lori, in turn, tells Joe both of his parents are dead, so he only really has his grandfather, his cat, and he hopes Joe. The song Take a Chance on Me is Lori's big moment to beg Joe to take a chance on him and to be his friend. He notices how Joe lives how she wants and the freedom that she has, opposed to him living with his grandfather. By the end of the song, Joe decides that she and Lori will be friends, and she invites him to skate with her tomorrow at the pond. Back at home, Beth yells for Marmy as the girls have returned with Mr. Brooks and Lori. Meg has sprained her ankle at the party. The men leave, and Meg and Joe discuss the party with Marmy and Beth. Meg only danced with Mr. Brooks, and she dreamily says it was the best night of her life. And then while she left for the party a girl, she is coming home a woman, before hobbling up the stairs on her ankle. Marmy encourages Amy to come forward and to apologize for the mean thing she said to Joe earlier. Amy apologizes, and Joe presents her and Beth with a little treat she brought them from the party. Everyone else heads upstairs to bed, and Joe tells Marmy that she will be adding something to her story and be in bed soon. Joe finds her entire portfolio empty 
and realizes someone has burned her stories and she knows exactly who. Joe rushes upstairs screaming for Amy, who admits that she burned the stories. Joe goes to choke Amy, but Marmee gets in between them. And again, Amy confesses that she burned Joe's story because Joe has everything and Amy has nothing. Here, Amy says, I'm always forgotten. I'm always last. I'm never invited anywhere. Classic youngest child. After the scolding, Amy runs back to bed and Marmee apologizes to Joe for the loss of her work. Joe is clearly disappointed, saying that her writing is her whole life and Marmee assures her that that passion is still there. Marmee goes to bed and Joe sings the better reprise. Suddenly, she has an idea and begins to write again. It's been three weeks since the ball, so now early March, and Lori comes to ask Joe if she would like to ice skate with him at the pond. Joe agrees after some teasing and the two head out. Amy wishes to join them, but says to Beth that Joe still hasn't spoken to her since the burning of the stories, despite the nice picture that Amy drew for Joe. Beth encourages her to go and says that she can borrow her skates while Beth plays the piano. Amy joyfully takes Beth up on the offer and rushes out, bumping into Mr. Lawrence when she goes. Mr. Lawrence enters and sees Beth playing the piano, which is very out of tune. He's looking for Lori, but Lori is obviously not there. So he tells Beth that he's going to forbid Lori from ever playing with those dreadful merch girls. Mr. Lawrence asks Beth if she's afraid of him, and she says, only a little. In this scene, Mr. Lawrence also reveals that he had a daughter who had a piano, who unfortunately has died, and he's locked the piano away at the house. Beth begins to play and sing, off to Massachusetts, a little off tune. When Beth forgets the words, Mr. Lawrence jumps in, and it turns into a very cute duet. At the end of the song, the formerly grumpy Mr. Lawrence invites Beth to come to the house tomorrow. They'll dust off the old piano and play. Beth accepts and calls to tell Meg about her excitement. The excitement is derailed when Joe and Lori bring Amy in, who has fallen through the ice by the bridge. Joe scolds her and tells her that she shouldn't have been skating there in the first place. Amy counters with, you didn't want me skating near you. Joe says Amy skates recklessly, and if it had not been for Lori, she would have died. And Amy sadly says, maybe that would have been for the best. Joe strongly states that she never wants Amy to speak like that again. Meg, Beth, and Lori tell Joe to forgive Amy, and she does. She also says, promise me you'll never think of me as the enemy, but as a sister who loves you. It's a beautiful moment. They vow again to be the March sisters forever. Next, we go into Five Forever, where the girls adopt Lori into their group and promise that they'll be loyal till the end. The next scene takes us several weeks into the spring. The March house is busy as Marmee is headed to Washington to take care of Pa March, who is suffering from pneumonia. Amy will be staying with Aunt March while Marmee is away, and Mr. Lawrence promises to keep a close eye on the rest of the girls while they stay at the house. Joe arrives with $27.25 that she earned by cutting off her hair and selling it instead of asking Aunt March for the money like Marmee told her. Marmee expresses how proud she is of her little women, how much she loves them and will miss them and is on her way. Aunt March now sees Joe's hair and is furious. After all, they had a deal and cutting off your hair is not ladylike. Joe and Aunt March get into a huge fight and Joe tells her they don't live for society. They live for their own dreams in the hope to fulfill those dreams. Aunt March tells Joe that she will not take her to Europe and waits for Amy in the carriage. Amy goes to finish packing. Joe and Beth run off when Mr. Brooks enters wearing a military uniform. He informs Meg that he is enlisted in the war, but before he goes, he needed to speak to her. Through the song, More Than I Am, John first expresses his love for Meg and asks her to marry him. 
Meg accepts the offer, confirming her love for him. This is a sweeping duet with a gorgeous melody and some brilliant lyrics. John leaves, telling Meg that he'll write her five times a day. The rest of the sisters enter, and Joe announces that they'll all go to Europe by saving their pennies and getting jobs. Meg tells Joe that she can't because she's engaged to Mr. Brooks. Amy is immediately happy and wishes for Meg to have a big wedding before she remembers that Aunt March is in the carriage. Joe is unhappy by the engagement, saying that they made a promise to stay together, and Meg is breaking that promise. Meg says that things change, explaining that Joe has changed too since they made that promise. She loves John, and she leaves the room. Joe, again, is very upset and feels like she's lost Meg. Beth tries to encourage her that Meg isn't actually gone. Things are just changing. In the final scene of this act, it's May, and Lori is in the March attic looking for Joe, who was sitting on the roof before writing her stories. He has news. Since the war is over, his grandfather has enrolled him in college, so he will be leaving for the summer semester soon. Joe is excited for her friend, but wishes she could go with him. Lori does not want to go and leave Joe, but he does have a question for her. He first kisses her and then asks her to marry him. Joe turns him down as she thought he really understood her and understood that she never wanted to marry. Lori takes her denial as her saying that she does not want to marry him, and Joe is furious and orders him out of the attic. Now, alone, without a trip to Europe, with Meg getting married, and no longer able to rely on Lori's friendship, Joe sings the Act 1 finale, Astonishing. The best song in the show, hands down, may be one of the best songs in musical theater history. Then he ordered for more, now I'm writing for the weekly volcano press. Act 2. We're back again in the boarding house in 1865. A telegram has arrived for Joe, and Mrs. Kirk, who runs the boarding house, is looking for her, so she asks the professor. The professor says that he and Joe are barely acquaintances, they've only been to the theater together, and he's only given her German lessons. Why would Mrs. Kirk ask him? As he's trying to explain this to Mrs. Kirk, who's, like, not buying it, there's clearly something going on there, Joe enters and tells him about her time with the Weekly Volcano Press. This song explains how she went to the Weekly Volcano Press, read her story to the publisher, and he was so entranced by it, he agreed to publish her. The story is the same one from the top of Act 1 about Clarissa, but Joe has made some major changes for the better. The story now includes Clarissa going on her own journey while in the forest running from Braxton, giving up vanity, giving up her necklace and her riches, and giving um, her only remaining shawl to a poor man. And she, in turn, returns to defeat Braxton, and she gets help from a second Rodrigo who turns out to be her sister. It's very complicated, but it's a really beautiful piece um, that wraps and ties everything together really nicely. And just like the first time uh, Joe tells the story at the top of the show, other actors in the show are acting it out behind her. The professor is extremely happy for Joe and offers to take her to dinner to celebrate the success when Mrs. Kirk remembers the letter. Joe opens it to find that Beth has contracted scarlet fever and she must return home immediately. In the next scene, several weeks later, Mr. Brooks and Mr. Lawrence help to move the beautiful piano from his house into the March's parlor to surprise Beth. Beth is still very ill, but she's so happy to have a new piano to play. Mr. Lawrence asks Joe if she saw Lori when he was in New York, to which she answers no. Mr. Lawrence apologizes, not realizing Lori didn't visit her while he was there on business. Lori is now in Europe, where he ran into Amy, who was visiting with Aunt March. Now the group sits around the piano to sing the reprise of Off to Massachusetts. While singing, Joe realizes how much she misses New York and sets out to write to the professor instead. 
We now cut to Professor Bear, who reads and reflects on Joe's letter in his song, How I Am. In the song, the professor struggles to find a way to tell Joe how he is. It's quieter now without their fights or conversations. He states that he had wanted a life alone in his room with his books, and now he's seen the life that might be ahead of him. Joe has changed everything for him. This is actually an underrated song from the show and a fantastic character piece. In Joe's letter to the professor, she mentions that she will be taking her sister and mother to Cape Cod to help Beth get well by the sea. And that's where we find the girls next. They're in Cape Cod. While at the sea, Marmy says that she's going inside to write a letter to Paul March to tell him how wonderful it is. Beth and Joe decide that they'll use the kite that Joe has just bought. The sisters sit together and sing, some things are meant to be. I don't even know how to describe this song because it is so beautiful and it is so sweet. At the heart of the song, it's just a moment where we see the bond that Joe and Beth have. We also learn that Beth has made peace with the fact that she will die. Some things are meant to be, the tide turning endlessly, the way it takes hold of Beth no matter what she does. Some things will never die, the promise of who you are and the memories of Beth when she's far from her family. The song ends with Beth letting go of the string from the kite, symbolizing her death. In the following scene, Amy returns from Europe with Aunt March, a proper lady. Amy is reunited first with Meg, then Marmy, and finally Joe, who insists that as she died, Beth urged her sisters to tell Amy not to worry about not saying goodbye. As Amy goes to show Marmy and Beth what she brought back from Europe in the other room, Lori enters with the bags and is confronted by Joe. The two reconcile. Lori has decided to join his grandfather's business and tells Joe that he is meant for mundane things, but she has always been meant to soar. Amy enters again, and Lori asks Amy if she told Joe, and we move into the upbeat number, The Most Amazing Thing. In this song, Lori and Amy admit before they knew about Beth's passing, while in a gondola in Venice, he proposed and they planned to be married in the spring. Afterwards, Amy apologizes to Joe and says that she felt Lori has always been Joe's, but Joe insists that he has always been one of them. The girls have a tender moment and we get the sense that Amy and Joe may be closer to as they grow older. Next, we find Joe crying in the attic over the death of Beth. Marmy enters and comforts her. Marmy tells Joe that nothing could have changed what happened to Beth, not even Joe with her strong will. She then goes on to give the heartbreaking performance of Days of Plenty. In this song, Marmy explains that as a mother, you never expect to bury your young child. You expect to have days of plenty to enjoy them and to enjoy your life, but things change. So she refuses to feel sorry for herself, but instead to live more and to remember and honor the memory of Beth. Marmy says you need to fight to keep those who have died with you. You cannot let their death defeat you. Marmy now leaves Joe alone in the attic and immediately the song, The Fire Within Me, begins. Joe reflects on her childhood and how that childhood, coupled with the promise to remain the four Marge sisters, was truly the fire within her. Joe's fire comes from the strength she gets from her sisters. Everything she wanted to do was for them because they were her best friends. And now with the death of Beth, it has completely changed everything. In a second, Joe gets an idea and starts to write. She writes what will become the first paragraph of the actual novel Little Women, with some changes to make it a little bit more dynamic to speak out loud. The song now transitions into a semi-astonishing reprise, and again, Joe says that her greatest adventure is about to begin, here in this attic, 
but in some ways the four of them frozen in this book will make them astonishing at last. It is now the spring of 1866 and the day of Laurie and Amy's wedding. As Amy fusses around, Meg comes in to inform Joe that a strange man is there to see her. Joe goes outside to see that it's Professor Bear. He's come all this way to return the manuscript to the book that Joe wrote and sent to him. Joe says, of course, there's no one else's opinion that she respects more. Joe invites him in, but he insists on speaking to her outside before. Now the song, Small Umbrella in the Rain, begins. As the professor starts to speak, it looks like it's going to rain, but Joe disagrees. He sings that whatever he thinks slash says, Joe disagrees or contradicts him. Despite their differences, she makes him laugh, she makes him smile, she makes him sing, and he loves her. He proposes marriage, maybe in a week, a month, a year, he's a patient man. Joe accepts, reminding him that she will not change, but as long as they share a small umbrella in the rain, they'll be fine. A very cozy and close kind of love that doesn't mind if you get wet. They kiss, and the professor informs Joe that he showed her novel to the publisher at the Weekly Volcano Press, and he wants to publish her novel about her and her four sisters. Marmy enters and tells Joe that things should be beginning shortly, and meets Professor Bear and invites him in. Now alone on stage, Joe picks up his umbrella and begins to sing the final number, Sometimes When You Dream. She's interrupted by Professor Bear saying, Joe, we are all waiting for you. She smiles at the audience. We feel Beth's spirit. She takes the professor's hand, heads inside. The chords from Astonishing Play, the lights dim, and Little Women is over. Sometimes when you dream, your dreams come true. In extraordinary ways, suddenly a day can be so amazing. And First of all, I want to give myself a round of applause for not crying giving that synopsis. If you know me, you know that I love Little Women and that I cry very easily when discussing this story. So I'm proud of myself for not crying. <laughs> I think this is the perfect time for a Little Women revival. I think we are in the middle of a Little Women revival, quite honestly. After the 2019 film, I think we are in this revival of seeing pieces about women who lived 150, 200 years ago and seeing the validity in their lives, even if they seem mundane to other people. I have a lot of thoughts about this musical and this story that I want to talk about. So let's just jump right in and talk about those four March sisters. First, let's talk about Meg, the oldest and my favorite sister. Meg is truly the romantic. And what I love about this musical is that it gives Meg the space to be the romantic. It gives her and John this gorgeous duet so you really understand the depth of their love for one another and how truly they are meant to be. I think often we can skip over this by just saying, Meg found a boy and she's happy. But Meg found true romance. Meg found true love and that's what Meg was after. It's very different from what her sisters were after, but it's what Meg wanted. Next, of course, is Joe. And I think this musical does a really great job of finding the middle ground for Joe. Often in adaptations, we see Joe either get her love, the professor, or her passion, the novel. And this musical allows Joe to have both. At the end, she gets the man, and she also gets to be a published author, which is something she's always dreamed of. When I talk about Beth, I want to talk about two different things. Her relationship with Mr. Lawrence and her relationship with Joe. First, Mr. Lawrence. Mr. Lawrence is grumpy. We don't really like him at the top of the show, but something within Beth draws the kindness out of him. Um, often I think it's because she reminds him of his daughter who's recently deceased. Um, but I also just think there's something special within Beth that brings out the best in people. And I think that's why people like being around her, specifically Mr. Lawrence and Joe. 
Something this musical does, I think, better than literally any other adaptation is the relationship between Joe and Beth. You really understand that they are best friends and that Joe loves her with all of her heart and Beth feels the exact same way. This musical does a great job of making us believe that Beth and Joe have a bond that they don't have with their other sisters. There's something very special about the relationship that Joe and Beth have together. And we see that in the song, Some Things Are Meant To Be. At the top of that song, before they actually start singing, Joe has a bit of dialogue where she says, when you came into this world, I told Marmee, Beth is mine. Everyone has someone special in the world and you are mine, my sweet Beth. If that doesn't make you wanna burst into hysterical tears, I don't know what does. This musical, again, just does a fantastic job making us believe that those two are not only sisters, but best friends, ride or die till the very end. Amy can be considered by most to be the least likable sister or the villain, if you will. I don't think this adaptation does anything crazy with her character or something super out of the box. I think though, this story does a really good job, the musical particularly, does a really good job of making us believe that Joe wants to get along with Amy. That Joe, as the older sister, sees that she should be getting along with Amy and that her and Amy should have a relationship. And I think that's really important to us learning to like Amy. Because if Joe likes Amy, we as the audience will like her as well. Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy are all so different, but they work together so well. Like it works so cohesively as a unit. Um, the other person, the other woman that I wanna talk about in this story is Marmy, their mother. I think the musical does a fantastic job of giving Marmy room to be a full rounded character. Typically, older women in musicals don't get as much shine as the younger women. They don't get a moment to really be well-rounded. They're just like the wise old character who like knows everything. But in this adaptation, I feel like Marmee gets a chance to be scared, to be happy, to make mistakes in her parenting. She gets all of that in this adaptation, which is something I don't think I've seen in many other Little Women adaptations for Marmee. Little Women for me is always gonna be a story about sisterhood. And this musical, I think there are two different ways to view the sisterhood. I wanna talk about the first one being Joe and the song Better. In the song Better at the top of the show, Joe asks herself and the audience, am I better when I'm at home with my mother and sisters? I don't really know. Has Joe relied too much on her mother and her sisters to encourage her to be her best self? Has she really learned how to be her best self when they're not around? Is she only at her best with them? Is Joe capable of holding herself accountable and being the best version of herself without them by her side, holding her hand along the way? Again, I don't know. Let me know what you think. The other place in this musical that I love to discuss the theme of sisterhood is Joe's promise to stay the four March sisters forever. Throughout the musical and throughout the novel, Joe makes her sisters promise that they will always be the four March sisters the way that they are right now. Inevitably, it doesn't happen. Meg gets married, Amy goes to Europe, Beth dies. Everything changes. And Joe has to realize that just because they aren't all living at home in Concord, Massachusetts, doesn't mean that they won't be the same March sisters they've always been. They'll grow, little things will change, but they will always be sisters. Nothing can change that. No matter if Beth has passed on, no matter if Amy moves to Europe with Lori, no matter if Meg has 700 kids, they will always be sisters. And while it may not be the same as it was, that will never change. In The Fire Within Me, Joe has the idea to write the story of her and her sisters to hold them in the attic where it all began. But also I think at that moment, Joe realizes what is astonishing. Joe has talked about wanting to explore, go on adventures, visit the world, and she thinks that will make her astonishing. 
But in that number, in the fire within me towards the end, she realizes in that attic when they were children, these wonderful, fantastic stories, that is what made Joe astonishing. She realizes now with her sisters, she is astonishing and she has always been astonishing because of the bond that they've had together. The fire in Joe comes from the strength of her and her sisters, but also that's what makes Joe astonishing. That's what make all of these women astonishing. The bond that they have with their sisters and their mother. Some things are meant to be The tide turning endlessly The way it takes hold of me so now that I've talked about the themes and the characters, I want to spend a little time talking about my dream revival and the questions that I have for you about the dream revival. First and foremost, I think that the sisters should be multicultural. I think we live in a world now where it would be lovely to see four sisters, maybe of all different races, um, playing the March sisters. It's such an iconic American story, but I would love to see the women on stage performing this musical reflect what the people in America and the people across the world actually look like. I think it could happen because Crystal Lynn Lloyd of Dear Van Hansen, she played Alana Beck, actually just finished playing Joe in a production of Little Women prior to the shutdown that just happened. Um, so I think it's something that can happen and it's something that's happened before and it can happen again. When we're doing a 2020 revival of Little Women, I think we have to ask ourselves specifically with this story, does the revival change based on the perception of the source material right now? Let me explain. The 2019 version of Little Women, the movie, was a fantastic film, but I think what that film did was present the story in a very different way than it's ever been presented before. All of your old biases are thrown out the window because it gives characters a chance to shine and characters a chance to defend themselves against what we've always perceived as them just being bad people. The movie took the opportunity to make audiences reevaluate whether or not Amy is a bad person or if Amy was just a kid when she did a bad thing. I think the 2019 film and the musical do a really good job of showing us that Amy and Joe are not as different as they seem. They're both hot-tempered, they both are artists, they both want adventure and wonderful things to happen to them and they don't wanna be left out, but they go about it in such vastly different ways. The movie also takes the time to make it very clear that Beth isn't just sweet and nice and kind and good-tempered. Beth is all of those things and Beth also has extreme social anxiety. It's part of the reason why she never imagines big things for her life because she's so comfortable staying at home and being a recluse. So with that in mind, does the revival have to change things to be popular with people? Do we have to change things within the show to make it more acceptable to a 2019 audience? Do we have to give Amy more time to redeem herself? Do we have to show more of Beth's anxiety? Do we have to give a little bit less to Meg and a little less to Joe to allow the other two, the youngest sisters, to shine through? I'm not quite sure. It's something that I've been debating with. Does the revival have to change based on our current perception of the source material? Let me know what you think. I think it's a hard thing to kind of pin down and, and answer. Little Women is ultimately a musical and a story about the bonds of sisterhood and how that follows you for your entire life, no matter what you do, no matter where you go. I think that's why I want to see it revived. I want to see these kind of stories, stories that empower women, stories that empower sisterhood and motherhood on stage for the world to see. I think this could have a great Broadway run, off-Broadway run. Honestly, I could see a Little Women, the musical, the movie. I would love that. 
I think everyone would love that. It would also allow us to explore a lot more things that we don't get to explore in two hours on stage, which we can do probably in a two and a half hour movie. If you're interested in learning more about Little Women, I have so many recommendations for you. First, the novel. The novel is fantastic. I love it so much. I would definitely recommend reading it to get familiar with the characters and get a little bit more backstory on them. I would also recommend watching the 1939 movie starring Katherine Hepburn. The movie famously uh, saved Katherine Hepburn's career. Prior to making this movie, Katherine Hepburn had started a bunch of huge flops, and this one she earned an Oscar nomination and people started to love her again. There's also the 1949 movie, which I'm not the biggest fan of, but it's good. There's the 1994 movie, which I love, the 2018 PBS short miniseries, fantastic miniseries, and then the 2019 movie that I absolutely adore. There's also an anime if you're into that. Uh, there's a web series, and there's also an opera that has an amazing aria for Meg called Things Change Joe that she sings right after her and uh, John Brooke get engaged. Anyways, those are all my recommendations. A lot of things to check out. Tell me what you think of them. The opera's really great. Definitely check it out. Of course, there's also the cast recording, which is on YouTube or pretty much anywhere else you get your music. Probably should have mentioned that first. Whatever. <laughs> um, but I guess that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you so much for sticking around and listening to this. There are a million things you can be listening to, so thank you for taking the time to listen to my podcast. As always, you can follow along with the show on Instagram. Our handle is at Musical Revival Podcast. You can follow us on Spotify. And if you have time, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. Bye.